In this episode, we unpack the world of commercial property investing. My guest is Steve Polisi, who is an active investor and commercial property buyer's agent. He's been featured in Money Magazine and numerous news media outlets. Steve has just released his book, Commercial Property Investing Explained Simply. And as a special gift for being my podcast listener, you can get a copy of this book for free. Today, we discuss the outlook for commercial real estate, the risks and benefits of investing in commercial property, and key considerations for new investors. We also touch on due diligence, funding, and ways to improve investment yields. Steve's book is an excellent resource. If you're a new investor, it will give you a solid foundation. If you're already investing, it will give you some creative ideas for growing and optimizing your portfolio. To get your free copy of Steve's book, Commercial Property Investing, simply visit medicalmoney.com slash Steve and use the code medical to get the book for free. I learned so much from the book and chatting to Steve and I hope you do too. Enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo Medical Indemnity Insurance. As a valued listener of my podcast, you will get a 5% discount off your premium. For most of us, indemnity insurance is our biggest fixed cost of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and cost of your policy? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Last year, I reviewed my policy and discovered Tigo. Tigo's policy was significantly cheaper and new clients get an extra two months free in their first year. If you're new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo's medical legal support and advisory is available 24-7 and they are backed by Berkshire Hathaway Specialty Insurance. Discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. That's T-E-G-O dot Hey, I'm Andrew and this is the Medical Money Podcast where we talk about personal finance, investing and other random topics to make you a happier human. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review and share the episode with someone you care about. You can connect with me via my blog, medicalmoney.com and just remember that the content of this podcast is general in nature and not personal financial advice. Podcast guests are sharing their own opinions and may hold positions in companies discussed. Please seek professional advice before making any financial decision and always read the product disclosure statements. Steve, thanks for taking the time to join me today. How are you? I'm good, Andrew. How about you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. This year, you released your book called Commercial Property Investing Explained Simply, and you've been featured on Sunrise and Money Magazine, and you've really created in this book what I think is a good A to Z guide that has something for everyone from beginners like myself to experienced investors. And today, I think we're just going to really scratch the surface on a range of topics that you do delve into the book. But to start us off, can you tell us a bit about you and why you decided this was a book that needed to be written? Okay, no problem, Andrew. So, um, prior to being a buyer's agent in the commercial space, I used to be a structural and mechanical design engineer. So I've designed, funnily enough, I actually designed medical equipment for my first job, and then I moved into mine site design. Um, in that back process was building my own portfolio to quite substantial size, and then just decided about six years ago, I'm doing this every night till 2am, I might as well make a job out of it. So started being a buyer's agent. Um, originally started in the residential space, so started buying quite a lot of residential properties interstate. So I'm, I'm Sydney-based, but I've bought many properties in Adelaide, Canberra, Brisbane, Tasmania, um, probably I'd be over 500 properties now in that residential space. And then just, I, I wasn't I wasn't well-versed in commercial, but I had a few clients say, oh, Steve, can you, can you find me a commercial? And then obviously paying client, this is what they want. So I'm really analytical because I was an engineer and just found a few commercial properties, 
ran the due diligence on them and had a few light bulb moments saying, look, these are actually good investments if you can buy a good one, and then started from there. And since then, bought 200 commercial properties, um, quite a lot. Uh, the reason for writing the book, I'll admit, so most most of my clients and people who ask me questions know basically nothing about commercial property. So every day I was having five to 10 phone calls with the same conversation of this is how commercial works, who pays the leases, how rental increases work, what the risk profile of a commercial property is and things like that. Um, so I actually decided just to write like a 20-page ebook that I was going to send to the clients just so they could kind of get their head around commercial. And then 20 turned to about 50, 60 pages very quickly, 50 turned to about 100, and then all of a sudden I just went, oh, there's actually a book here. So I just sat down for a year most nights and just, just finished off the book because there, there's nothing out there, Andrew. Like literally, there's no there's no knowledge. You can find a few websites, but in terms of literature, there's nothing. And I've, I've written it like a textbook. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's if you want to know about leases, go to the lease chapter. If you want to know about cash flow, go to the cash flow chapter. So I've kept it very simple and kind of structured in that form. And um, it's been going well. I've sold over a couple thousand already, and it's only been on the market for a few weeks. Yeah, very good. It definitely is um, very well structured, and, and like you said, it doesn't have to be read from cover to cover. You can go into the bits which um, interest you, or where you feel like your strengths or your weaknesses are in there. But I think what's also interesting is that you've come at it from an investor side first, and then now you've moved into the role of as a buyer's agent, being able to help people kind of go through the journey that you've been through as well. And that sort of comes through the book as well, I think, as well, yep. rather than just from the um, the sales side of things. And so for you now, do you um, still hold residential property yourself or have you kind of moved entirely to commercial? I still have a substantial residential portfolio. Um, admittedly, I'm not really buying them anymore. Commercials, it's a, it's a game changer for me. You can kind of win on both fronts. You can get the capital growth and you can get the cash flow. And obviously, I'm, I'm somewhat of an expert at it. So I'll keep doing commercial probably for the next five or six purchases and then reassess after that. Yep. And definitely, I think once people have read the book, they do realize that there is this um, different uh, way of thinking in terms of approaching commercial uh, to residential properties, which we all tend to have a bit more experience with. I think also like in the Australian market, there's a few books from America, but it's quite different for, for the Australian market too. And while we're talking about markets, let's maybe talk about where the market is at right now. So the last 12 months, obviously the pandemic has changed the way that we live and work. What have you seen happening in the commercial property market and where do you think things might be changing over the next two to five years compared to where they were, say, um, pre-corona last year yeah so as you said a lot's changed i get asked about this constantly most of the time it's people just having fear that their investments are going down they're not going to make money from commercial property but certain markets have actually emerged as well so in industrial properties vacancy rates on those have actually tightened and they've actually had capital growth in the last 12 months due to the e-commerce boom and the more need for space um, but obviously offices in cbds are struggling so then most most white collar workers now are working from home two three days a week. So even at two days a week, that means that office is forty percent vacant compared to what it was prior to COVID. So there's going to be a shift in that market. Um, most most of the people I speak to in that industry are basically setting up what's called a hub and spoke model. So they they're going to downsize their main CBD office to something about fifty percent of the size, and then open up two or three kind of fringe outer city smaller offices. Um, and the benefit of that is obviously people don't have to commute as much, but they can also increase their talent pool because now they can actually, they can increase their radius to kind of 50 to 100 kilometers of where the CBD was and still get the talent that they want. And people people actually are willing to have a less of a salary due to lack of commuting. 
So that that industry is going to change. Um, admittedly, I wasn't always a huge fan of high density offices anyway. So I'm, I'm a big believer that the land's always going to grow. So I try to get land components when I purchase. Much like I generally stay away from high density apartments in the residential space because I'd rather something freestanding with the land component with some form of value add. So I've always done that with um, office space anyway. Um, in terms of the retail sector, um, that's struggling again in the CBD, mainly from lack of foot traffic. Um, obviously, COVID has meant like they're, they're, they're not having as many people go into the centres because it's, it's as a needs basis. Uh, but CBDs are generally struggling. But then there's some being some really strong performers. So the suburban retail, so that's things like the little cafes and clothing stores, barbershops, massage, uh, physios, GP clinics, things like that. They've actually seen an increase in business because the people that aren't no longer going to the city are going to their local one because they have one or two days from home. So it, it's going to continually evolve. Um, I always try to buy with not a two to five year mindset, with a 15 to 30 year mindset. So that way, long term, you're always going to be performing well. Mm. What have you seen in regional centres? I know, uh, like a lot of the residential property yields have been quite good recently. Are you seeing property prices in the commercial space go up in in these kind of largish town areas? It, it depends what it is. Um, most commercial has actually increased in value anyway because as they're, they're valued off their yield. So it's not like residential where it's just the price is the demand on it. It's the return you get from the cash flow, i.e. what the tenant pays as rent. So as interest rates keep dropping, we're seeing capital growth anyway because the cash flow is actually increasing. So most of them doing well. Funnily enough, in sometimes like the regional areas, they're quite strong investments like regional retail, for instance, those, you know, like the main street, how it's got like 30 shops in it. Some of those vacancy rates are actually tighter than most CBDs anyway. So they perform really well. Something like an industrial warehouse, I'd always be weary of though, because if there's a lot of land surrounding it, you need to check the future developments because if they build another 20 or 30 warehouses, all of a sudden your demand's going to drop. So it's just with commercial, it, it's case by case. It, it's very hard to say a big blanket statement because even different size industrial spaces are going to perform differently because there's different need for that demographic, where that area is servicing, for instance. So there's a lot more moving parts than residential. Mm. Over, we've obviously seen some states have uh, worse lockdowns with Victoria, obviously the headline one. Have you seen much difference in the commercial property valuations or sales prices um, differ in different states over this last 12-month period? Generally not. So even the ones in, say, Melbourne for the lockdown, for instance, commercial, it's a little bit more of a flow-on effects. So it's not like residential where you can just go and it's tangible. You you run a desktop valuation and you get it. There's There's a lot more moving parts and because they're on generally long leases, there's there's two or three years of it running. So there's been a lot of people sitting on their hands, but there, there wasn't those big fire sales that everyone was expecting at the start of COVID. It's, it's much a long-term investment. Mm, okay. And so let's take a step back from the markets and talk about commercial property as an asset class. For most of us, we begin with a real estate investment um, of our own homes and then many also then stick with residential because it's something we then understand and quite often just hold on to our first home as we move on to a bigger one later on. What are the benefits of commercial property as, in, as an investment and how do these compare with uh, residential property? Okay, so commercial, the, the main reason people buy commercial property is the cash flow. You, you get a much larger cash flow compared with residential. So like just, just as an example, say you go out and you buy a million dollar commercial property on a 70% loan, 
at a six and a half percent net yield, you're talking about fifty thousand dollars a year cash flow after after your loan repayments. Whereas with residential, you go and you buy a million dollar house, for instance, that's generally going to be negatively geared, 10, 15 grand a year. So there's quite a lot. We're talking about 60, 65 grand a year difference in cash flow. So you're buying it that way. So so much, much higher yields. Um, the other benefit of commercial is the tenants pay all the outgoings. So with residential, where you've got maintenance issues and things like that constantly, with commercial, tenant pays all the maintenance. They pay the council rates. They pay the water rates. They pay basically everything. Even your land tax, in some instances, they'll pay that as well. So the only outgoing you have is whatever interest or loan you have on that property. So much higher cash flow. You can actually also get the same capital growth as well. So it's actually a little bit of a misconception that commercial properties don't grow. Um, That just comes from people that don't know what they're talking about. If you don't believe me, look at any commercial property 10 years ago to, to now. They've performed very well. Most of them actually doubled. So you can get the capital growth. Um, the reason why investors don't just flock to commercial over residential is it is high risk because if you don't know what you're doing, you can shoot yourself in the foot very easily. So something like a residential property, as long as you buy in a good quality suburb, worst case is you might have a bit in the maintenance. And if the vacancy rates are tight, you might lose your tenant every couple of years for a few weeks. Whereas with commercial, if you say, uh, let's use an example. So, so we're buying a retail uh, property and we don't buy something on the main street with the tight vacancy rates. We buy one one street back where there's no foot traffic. If that tenant left that property, you might have a vacancy period of three, four, five years because you've actually bought a quite a poor one. So all of a sudden, you're going to have this debt on a property with no income. And that's going to be very hard for you in the future to lend again until you get it tenanted. So there's a lot more moving parts. You, you need to know what you're doing. So the returns are there with cash flow and capital growth. But you need to check out and do a lot more due diligence to ensure you're getting a good low risk one. Mm, especially with the first purchase, I suppose. Otherwise, you are then hamstrung, aren't you, for, for going forward uh, yep. with more properties, especially given that typically your um, deposit is a fair bit higher, isn't it? Yep, exactly right. Yeah. And from a management fee side of things, what, what's the typical going rate compared to a residential property? Okay. So, so that's going to change depending on the purchase price or the, the return you're getting from that commercial. So obviously, if you go out and you buy a $5 million shopping center, you're not going to pay 10%, for instance. But if you buy a little 300 gram warehouse, you're probably talking that 7 to 9%. Uh, but on average, it's, it's about 5%. It's, it's similar to residential. Basically, a commercial property manager wants to make somewhere between two grand and six grand a year, depending on the purchase price. Okay, that, that makes sense. And so is do, do a lot of people manage their own commercial properties if it's like a single tenant or maybe only a couple of tenants in there, given that leases are longer and uh, typically there's less kind of maintenance issues? Do you find that a lot of people do just manage it themselves? Yeah, probably about, oh, I'm going to say about 20, 30% of people do manage it themselves because it is quite easy. It's just making sure the rent comes in each month and that's basically what we have to do. Um, I'd normally encourage people to get a property manager because it's all nice when it's moving smoothly. But if, say, the COVID happens or there's, I don't know, bad weather or something happens that's seasonal in that area, you want someone that knows what they're doing. Um, in addition to that, I actually like that separation from the tenant because even successful businesses cry poor. So by having that kind of property manager in between, they can play the nice guy and playing you off to be the bad guy. Whereas if it's direct with the tenant, uh, yeah, it's a bit few more emotions involved. 
Yeah, I think especially like my audience is typically doctors, and uh, there is one thing which makes doctors good, and that's the ability to be to have empathy. But it sometimes doesn't work so well when you're the um, managing a property and someone comes to you with with a story that's going to significantly impact um, your return on investment. It's a lot easier to to fold in because of that empathy. Uh, in your book, you also give a good breakdown of the subsectors within the commercial investment space. Can you give us just a quick overview of the key sectors and maybe some of the benefits and risks of each that people should keep in mind? Okay, all right. So the the main one is industrial. So that's things like warehouses, manufacturing centres, even storage and things like that. Um, they're at this moment in time probably the lowest risk investment. And the, the main reason that the lowest risk investment is because they've got some versatility. So an industrial property could be like, in terms of tenants, could be a, a car mechanic or a fabricator, spray painter, wholesaler, distributor, um, storage. So, so they're, they're quite kind of versatile in that space. Um, and the other thing is you can actually get some comfort in the numbers. So like if I'm looking to buy, know, let's say, a warehouse in a big warehouse complex, I can look at all the other warehouses in that complex what they rent for per square meter, what they'll purchase for per square meter, and find the ones in that complex and the adjoining complexes that went vacant, how long they were vacant for. So you can get some comfort in those numbers to make sure that, yes, I've got a good low-risk investment that's versatile. And most of the vacancy rates at the moment are extremely tight. So like Sydney's 2.2, uh, Melbourne's 2.8, Brisbane's 3.2, uh, Adelaide's 3.4%. So that's generally on par with most residential vacancy rates. Um, the difference is they feel like they're a lot more because you get that vacancy in one period in time. Whereas with, with a residential property, you might have a vacancy every couple of years for two or three weeks. And in 10 years time, that's accumulated to kind of two or three or four months. Whereas with a, say an industrial asset, you might have a tenant generally on average about seven to 11 years is the stuff I look at. Um, but if you lose that tenant, you're going to have that three or four months in one hit. So it feels like a lot more because it's coming in one hit. So I, I really like the industrial space because you own land, it's versatile, and there's always going to need a there's always going to be a demand for that type of space. So you, you can buy really low risk ones of those. Um, another one is retail. So retail is just things like cafes, barber shops, hairdressers. Uh, medical, like all your listeners and things like that, where they've generally got a retail shop. Um, and that, that can actually come in many forms as well. So it can be like a freestanding. It can be on a main street. It could be a more specialized one above, uh, say, a main street, for instance. Sometimes you're on the second floor and things like that. So they're, they're a little bit harder to analyze, though, because there's going to be less comparables. Um, I'm not talking, by the way, retailers in Westfield shopping centres. I'm talking about the, the real world ones that most people could afford. So that's like the smaller suburban ones. Um, that one, you're going to need to look at things like foot traffic, for instance. That's really important. Or road traffic, um, what areas that business is servicing and things like that. So that that's retail. I, I really like that essential type retail. So the ones where you need that face-to-face contact. Um, but then they can also double up. You, you can buy a retail shop. That's also somewhat an office. So like a, a medical one, that's a bit of a crossover there with office or you could have an accountant or um, a lawyer or something like that where people actually want to go in and they want the foot traffic for their advertising. So that there's, there's some crossover there. Um, and then the other main one is offices, which we all know. Um, they, again, they can have some crossover with retail. So that could be, like I said, the second story on a retail center 
or the, the typical CBD one, the big 20, 30-storey towers where you just buy a space and there's an elevator and things like that. They're, for me, the highest-risk ones um, just because you can have an oversupply quite easily. So if, say, you buy one and it's part of a, I don't know, 12-storey building and then they do a development next door and they build a 30-storey tower, office tower, all of a sudden that market's going to become very, very saturated with an oversupply and then rents are going to stagnate, which means you're not going to get capital growth and it's going to increase the vacancy. So like I said, I compare those with kind of buying high-density residential properties, whereas with something like industrial, you actually can't get that because if you're buying an industrial centre and it's surrounded by residential, it's not economical for them to buy out those houses and then build more commercial properties in terms of industrial space because it's just too expensive. You can't build up. So just because of the floor stress that you need, they do one story. So you know that that market's saturated and you're always going to have a demand should the population of that suburb be growing. So there's that there. Um, and then there's some other types as well. You can get like mixed use. So you could have a commercial with residential. So that's the one where you have like the, re- the, like the retail shop on the bottom and then office, uh, sorry, a accommodation on top. So that could just be like residential properties on top. So units. Um, and then there's other special purpose ones so like hotels, leasehold properties and things like that. So they're, they're generally the ones you go after. There's also some other special ones like farms and things like that. It's, it's a really versatile space. Mm. Have you done much in that kind of um, you know other space with like farms and leasehold properties uh, and uh, special uh, purpose? Uh, admittedly, admittedly, I haven't. It's just a, a, an area I don't really want to get into. For me, it's high risk as well because it's, it's fairly one-dimensional. Like if you buy... I know some farms that you're leasing out for cattle farmers, for instance. There's just too many unknowns in terms of weather, that market, how it's operating, things like that, and legislation and transport and logistics. So I, I generally stay away from it. I, I keep it as simple as I can just to get the return. Mm, that makes sense. And so within that, sometimes the in, industrial seems to be getting quite a lot of attention, but a lot of the industrial areas can also in future sometimes change their zoning and stuff as well and then become kind of higher, higher valuations. So, so, so much, much like residential though, you can buy a residential that's owned for a certain like story level and then that gets changed. Then you can get it changed to mixed use where it might become commercial thing. And they actually go back and forth as well. Some areas, it's quite economical to turn warehouses into residential properties because yeah, there's a better going rate for residential properties than the commercial properties in that area and then vice versa. There's ones where residential, you actually get a much better return if that property was commercial and then if that zoning changes, you go back the other way. So, it just depends where you're buying, what you're buying, what the goal is of buying that type of property. Mm. Do you think with uh, like the manufacturing part of the industrial sec- segment, um, are we seeing more stuff being made here, do you think, or are there st- since because of coronavirus, or do you think we're still we're looking at going back to becoming an importing kind of country in terms of you know, face masks and those sorts of things? It, it's all, everyone's always going to go for the low-cost option. So if you're running a business, you're always going to look at the one that's most economical, um, there is some more manufacturing, but it's generally not on the small scale. Where we're talking those enormous warehouses that service multiple regions, or the ones that they they need a high quality, so a lot of like food and things like that. That that will be, but that's not available for the everyday investor. We're talking like fifty plus million dollars for those types yeah. of properties. The small ones, manufacturing still happens, but it's more tangible. So it's things like I don't know the the spray painters and the little mechanics or. Um, just like little fabricators, like the kitchen fabricators and things like that, where you're not going to sit there for three weeks waiting for it to be delivered. It gets done and it's installed the next day kind of thing. 
Yep. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And furniture, furniture yep. guys as well. There's still plenty of them around. Yep. yep. And so what are the major due diligence and financing issues uh, associated with acquiring commercial property? Okay. So, so due diligence, this is the big one with commercial and this is where most people get unstuck. So there's quite a lot of work because you're also somewhat buying into the business that you're effectively buying the property for because their success is your success if they stay there long-term and you can get rental increases in them. So first and foremost, when you're kind of doing due diligence, you've got to do the fundamentals, much like residential. So look at the area, what, what's going on in that area? Like what's the population growth? What's the infrastructure spending? Where are people commuting to? Things like that. So you want to make sure fundamentals stack up, you're buying in a good quality area. Then you actually look at the type of property that you're buying. So whether you're buying an industrial or an office or a retail, they're going to have different kind of imprints that you need to check on them. So then that type, does that type of investment service that area or where is it servicing? So something like if you're buying an industrial warehouse and it's near an airport or say a, a port, that might be important because if they're manufacturers, they're going to be shipping. So that's the demand for that type of one. Whereas one, say in the outer suburbs, that might only be servicing the local market. So you want to look at the arterial kind of where is that servicing the region? So then once you've done that, look at the vacancy rates of that type of investment. So like I said before, with the commercial properties, look at as many comparables as you can, find out what the vacancy rate is. Uh, that's not as simple as residential where you just go on a website. It's a lot more legwork. You have to do it manually and go through all the comparable properties because there's no database of this because it's an unregulated space. Check the vacancy. So that, that's the main risk. You want to make sure the thing you're buying is that if the tenant ever leaves, will it be filled quickly, i.e. is there demand for that type of property? So that's the big one for me. And then once you've found that kind of location and you're happy with it and then you found the property, then you need to look at the individuals on that property. So that's things like checking out the tenant. So you can request to look at their P&L statements. You can get rental ledgers. Um, you need to do all that type of thing. Look at who their competition is as well. So if you're buying, say, something in the retail space and you're buying a cafe, you need to look at available options to make sure a competitor doesn't open up three stores down and it kills your business. So that one's a bit more kind of a business analytical one. So look at the business, try to find out as many much information as you can, how many shops they have or locations, how long they've been operating for, things like that. Um, once you've done that, then you can look at the leases, for instance. So you've got to do a full lease review, check it how long they're going to be there, what are their options, what are the rental increases and things like that. Um, there's even things that the leases you need to check out. So with commercial leases, you're going to have rental guarantees or bonds or personal guarantees on that lease as well. So that's quite important. So if there's a personal guarantee, that's fantastic because it means the owner of the business has put his house up or something like that as collateral. So they're going to fulfill that lease versus say one of them that might just have a three-month bond, much similar to a residential space. So then you need to look at the leases. Um, then there's things like insurances, documents, uh, approvals from council, zoning approvals, valuations, all the fees and things like that. So th there's quite a lot. So if, if you end up getting my book, you'll, you'll see there's about eight pages with about 150 checklist items you have to go through for a commercial property. Mm. So just want to dig a bit deeper into the due diligence. Um, and so if we look at, say, macro trends and micro uh, things as well, so getting into a space which is, you know, going to be big in the future, which say we've talked about industrial, things such as like data storage centers seem to be big as well, at least in terms of public companies. 
Are there any trends that you see as you know mega trends that are coming, and also trends that are going down? Besides that, you know, uh, big um, supermarket, also not supermarket, big um, retail things like Meyer and, and uh, David Jones seem to be on on the down downward. Are there any things that any things that people should avoid? Uh, it, it's going to be case by case. You, you need to look at what you're buying. Do you think it's going to be there long term? Uh, I, I really like ones that are just versatile. So no matter what happens, they're going to be there long term. Um, the e-commerce one in terms, I'm seeing a lot of small distribution centers come up because people are getting really needy with getting stuff quickly. Like people are shocked now if you wait two weeks to get something. They want it almost the next day. So a lot of even the big retailers are opening up these small little kind of distribution centers so that way they can hold stock and get it to people within a day. So there's, there's a lot of websites now you get stuff from 12 to 24 hours so a lot of those open up. Seen a lot of food manufacturers, so those pre-made meal type companies, um, for the same reason, like I said, people want to get it quickly. They don't want to wait a week to receive their food. So that's coming up. But in terms of negative ones, it, it's going to be case by case. Um, anything that I think is not going to be there in 10 years' time, I just stay away from it. Um, outside the industrial space, there's there's certain ones I'm like that are obvious, like petrol stations, for instance. Those are really high-yielding. But for me, there's just too big of an unknown in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, where they're going to be and if it's still going to be a successful business. And then that's not as easy to redevelop as something like a warehouse, for instance, because there's environmental factors as well, and that can get really expensive. Um, Another one would be like banks. So most banks are downsizing really dramatically at the moment. So there's a lot of banks that are really high yielding that you can buy. But when's the last time you've walked into a bank? Like I haven't been in a bank in five years, so... For me, that's a bit of a giant industry as well. So I wouldn't buy that as a kind of tenant. So you just got to assess how long it's going to be there. Um, I, I Like I said, I, I keep the fundamentals there with a 15 to 30-year mindset and make my decision off that. Hmm. Is there a way that uh, individual re- individuals can research kind of market rents for properties and how they've and what leases have been renewed just from you know google or is it a little bit more challenging compared to residential yeah so it's a a lot more challenging um it's also an unregulated space as well so it's not like residential property where it's all going to be on core logic and things like that um but what what you generally do is go and call logic um and then find the comparable properties you're looking at and you can look at things like sales campaigns. So if you're trying to buy a warehouse and you see that one in the complex became vacant, I don't know, 12 months ago, and then the sales campaign went for three months, that's a reasonably good gauge that the vacancy period was three months. Um, you can also see the price that they advertised to lease the property at, but that doesn't actually mean they got that price. It might have been 10% cheaper and things like that. So for, for that type of information, I actually talk with people on the ground, so property managers. So I'll contact two or three property managers in the area. And commercial space is actually a very small kind of space because there's not a thousand that have come available like residential constantly. So they, they know what's going on in the market and, and they'll actually tell you what property is rented for what and how long they'll be. So um, to answer your question, there's no actual website. You just have to do the grunt work and find it out yourself. Mm. And so when it comes to, say, fit outs, I've just kind of seen a lot of, uh, we, we looked at like moving offices and and over the last few years, and it seemed that to get us to sign a lease for an extended period, the owners were willing to put in significant amounts of money for fit out, and also to give, say, six months of um, you know rent free period as well. Is that something that's commonly happening at the moment? It, it depends what industry you're kind of buying. Like something like an industrial warehouse, not as common. Retail is very common, so incentives are, are always going to be there to keep tenants long term. 
And that's that's one of the unknowns as well. So you don't actually know what incentives an owner's given a previous tenant if you're looking at comparable properties. So that you need to investigate certain industries like the medical ones, like like a, an owner giving a medical tenant an incentive, i.e. paying for the fit out, for instance, seems like they're doing you a favor, which they somewhat are, but they're also servicing themselves because by getting a medical tenant in there on a long lease, they've actually increased the value of that property because the, the yields are actually more attractive to investors. The It's more attractive to the banks. And when they do a valuation, they'll actually get a they'll actually make that money back when we three, fourfold. So there's 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 ones like that. There's other ones where you just do it to keep the tenant. So like obviously, like um one of my properties, I have a cafe up in Brisbane next to a train station. Um, that one during the first two months of COVID, I actually just gave it to him rent free. So I just said, look, rent free for you during COVID till you sort your stuff out. But as part of this, I want you to extend your lease. So he had about 12 months left on his lease. So he took on the next three-year lease option. So he was happy because he got rent-free. I was happy because I actually got a high valuation for that property because now I've got four years' worth of lease. Mm, that makes sense, yep. Mm. So you can you can really uh, jig things around to, to, to improve the situation for, for both yourself and, and also for the tenant, which obviously you would like to do as well. Yeah, commercial is open. Any anything basically goes. Everything can be negotiated with commercial, so you can change up. One of one of the common ones is like um, renovating the shop front. So, like, say you have a freestanding building, the tenants there, they're just kind of plugging away at their business. They don't have a spare fifty to hundred grand to do a major renovation on the building. You can give them an incentive as I'm going to pay for this, but I want three percent rental increases year on year, or I want you to sign a long lease. So both years can win. Mm. Let's dig a bit more into the leases. How are the leases typically structured in terms of duration and indexation and, and outgoings? Yep. So as I previously alluded to, everything is negotiable with a commercial lease. Absolutely everything. Um, with retail, there, there is the Retail Leasing Act, which has some restriction in terms of like charging your tenant land tax and things like that. But just for the sake of this conversation, you can actually negotiate everything. So you can negotiate the duration, what the renewal and leasing periods are, what uh, rental increases you have. So that could be CPI, it could be fixed, it could be a combination of both. It could be a percentage of their profits, for instance. So like when I buy little shopping centers and things like that, you want a good flow and mix of tenants. You don't just want to buy, uh, charge everyone the same rate. So some of the smaller ones that might bring some foot traffic, but they can't compete with the, the big dogs, do you give them a concession? You say, look, I'm going to charge you CPI, plus 50% of profits um, at a certain percentage, for instance. So they're actually paying less rent, but it actually benefits their neighbours because they're bringing more foot traffic. Um, And then with the outgoings, 90% of the time the tenants pay it. Um, You can get gross leases over net leases and then you have to work out the, the net return yourself. But like I said, absolutely everything can be negotiated. And so in negotiating that, what's a typical cost to be able to draw up a new lease, either for extending a current tenant or for finding a new tenant in a commercial property? Yep. So depending on who you use, if you use Convance, it's a little bit cheaper versus a solicitor, but we're not talking big figures. We're talking somewhere between $1,500 and $3,000 for a typical kind of lease. And so how... When we're doing the number crunching, how should we be calculating the um, the yields and assessing the yields and also the potential capital growth over time? Yep. Okay. So a couple of questions there. The first one, when you're calculating the yield, so normally commercials referred to in net yields or cap rates, which we can discuss a bit later. But in net yield is basically the income the tenant gives you after all expenses over the purchase price. 
So as the tenants normally pay the outgoings, it's just the rent they're giving you minus um, effective offset this for the cash flow minus the interest repayments. And then for the yield, it's just the rent they're giving you minus expenses over the purchase price. So that, that that's quite simple. Um, in terms of capital growth, um, that's all speculative, much like residential. People can tell you, um, but just for some numbers for you, residential retail and industrial properties have generally had between a five and six and a half percent growth year on year for the last 30 years, which is pretty similar to residential. It just comes in waves differently to residential because the economy has to do with it, the interest rates and things like that. But long term, you can still get the capital growth. And in terms of yields, what do we? What should we be, you know, having as rough figures in our heads uh, for, say, industrial or medical spaces or um, you know, office space? This is a very hard question to answer, Andrew, because it depends what you're buying, where you're buying, how long their lease is, what the demand of the area is. But just generally, if you're buying, say, an industrial property, everything I buy buy is normally over five percent net. So a 5% net's equivalent to about a 9-10% residential yield because that's a gross yield. Um, so that's there, but it's going to change on the floor space, for instance. So like you'll get a high yield. So I buy 7% net returning ones for small warehouses, whereas the, the larger ones you might only get, say, a 6% because they're going to have a longer lease on them. Then proximity to the CBD is going to change that. Who the tenant is, um, much like you said, medical, that actually has got a lower net net yield than say i don't know just a standard retail shop for instance because they're not as trustworthy for instance so it's case by case but most of the things i buy are between a five and seven percent net yield if you want to go on the fringes of the city you can get seven to eight percent if you want to go to regional you can get seven to nine percent if you want to be within 10 kilometers of the cbd you're talking probably four to five percent in sydney and melbourne but then for places like brisbane have a higher yield than say canberra Okay. Yeah. So lots of uh, there's lots of variability there, but I suppose the yields go down if you've if you've got a um or it's a, the yield is related to how secure the tenant is and also the size of of, of the property. Yeah. Plus 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 the net return. It's it's much like saying oh what what's a good yield for a residential property? You can buy in the CBD and get a completely different yield to twenty kilometers out to um, the sea, and then you have to argue the growth factor versus the risk. So there's a there's a lot of moving parts with commercial, but as I alluded to before. For every million dollars you spend, you're talking about $50,000 a year cash flow. If you buy a lower end one, it's obviously 40000 If you buy a really high yielding one, we're talking $60,000. Mm. Um, so what, in your book, you mentioned it, quite a number of ways that uh, investors can increase their yields and subsequent valuations. Can you give us a few of these examples? Yep. Okay. So with commercial, you can do all the same things as you can with residential property. So you can do those renovations, you can do the subdivisions, you can do the development projects and things like that. Um, but there's also a few other ones you can do. So some of the ones I've done, the easiest one is actually a rental increase. So as I said before, commercial properties are generally valued off the return that they give. So if you've got 3% rental increases on the lease, that's generally going to equate to 3% capital growth. So there's a nice little easy way. Um, if you were to say buy a property that was rented 10% below market value, and then once the lease is getting renewed in say a year's time or two years time or three years time, that and say that you're going to go back to market rate, which is 10 or 15% higher, that's going to basically cause you to have 10 to 15% capital growth. So that, that's an easy method of doing is just controlling the lease. Um, and then, like I said, you could always utilize more space and split it up. So if you've got a warehouse where they're not using a certain section, you could subdivide and things like that. Um, if you're buying something like, say, 
a whole complex, a whole whole industrial complex or a whole retail strip of things like that. You can do improved marketing for that. So social media, signage, presentation, um, things like that. Um, and then there's some little individual ones. So some of the other ones I've done is like ad space. So if you've got something on a main road, you could um, basically le- lease out some ad space. Um, solar panels is one. Vending machines, ATMs, telecommunications. Um, there, there's a whole range of things you can do. But one of the properties I actually saw in Sydney um, prior to writing the book was it was a fish and chip shop in Sydney's inner west. They had an ATM machine on the side, a residential property on top of it, um, and then they had solar panels and telecommunication repeaters on top. So they're getting five different streams of income from the one investment. So that would be very, very high yielding. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend living living under some telecommunications, but it is what it is. Yeah, the fish would be cooking itself with all that radiation kind of running around. Exactly right. Yeah. And just going back on the due diligence, like um, you mentioned briefly just on like council approvals and, and knowing what the council has plans for future. I know just near me on the main road, they're widening the main road. And so there was a um, a childcare centre that went in probably under two years ago. And it was a it was like they did a big renovation on a building, extended it and made it, obviously got all the approvals to make it a childcare centre. And then now it's basically been bashed down less than two years after it was put up because they're widening and making a two-lane road a four-lane road. Is it easy to find this kind of information before you embark on buying something and potentially having it like pulled away from you, uh, you know, by the local council? Uh, it's yes and no. Um, if you know what you're doing, it is. So whenever I'm buying a commercial property, I check what future developments on the cards. So you can actually talk to the local council and town planners and see what applications are in process and where they are at with their applications. So if I see that there's potentially a big road that's going to be built right next to my thing, that that could be a positive if they're not taking away your commercial space because you're going to get more um, road traffic. But if they're looking to kind of take away yours, that's a risk you need to assess when you're buying the property. Much like residential as well. You you should be doing that type of stuff. If you're buying on a rain main road for residential, you should be looking at what future developments are happening there. Hmm. So let's address some of the issues that you see with investors uh, or new investors and doctors in particular. What are the key considerations and common mistakes that new investors need to be aware of when they look at starting their commercial property portfolios? Okay. So for first and foremost, um, no offense to people. Most people don't understand commercial property. So they just go into it thinking that they know what they're doing and they go out and they, they just don't check something they should. So, But when you're starting, when you're going to choose if you're going to buy a commercial property, you need to assess why you're buying that commercial property. How does it fit into your investment portfolio? What value does it bring? And what end goal is it going to serve? And one, one of the hardest things I have, especially with my medical professional clients, is they hate, obviously, positive cash flow because they've got to pay tax on it. But as I kind of reassure them, tax is generally a good thing. It means you're making money. So that's that's the one they get. And they'll go out and they'll buy a lower-yielding one because they don't want to pay as much tax, which I think is just silly in the grand scheme of things. So assess why you're buying that property and how it's going to fit into your portfolio. One of the benefits of commercials actually can actually increase your serviceability. So a lot of times the client's got a few residential properties, but they're at the serviceability limit. With commercial, there's actually some different types of loans. So you can get things like lease loans where they actually take the income from the tenant quite highly and give you the loan based on the strength of the lease. So there's one there. Um, and then it's just doing the due diligence. It's, it's not like residential where you can go out, buy in a decent suburb, you're generally going to be okay as long as you don't do anything silly like buying a flood zone or a termite-ridden house, for instance. 
you need to go through all those things I mentioned before on every property. So there's less stock available. You've got to do more due diligence and you're more likely going to lose out on those deals as well because it's a lot more kind of volatile industry and there's a lot more cowboys kind of kicking about. So it's a lot harder to get into. But if you get it right and you're willing to do the work, or you can always engage a buyer's agent, like someone like me or another buyer's agent that, that can do all that work for you, you, you can reap the benefits of having a commercial property. As a buyer's agent, what sort of price, or sorry, not price, what sort of percentage or cost should someone um, you know, look at if they were to get a buyer's agent? Obviously, yeah, some, it depends on the type of property. Yeah, it depends on the type. So most, most commercial buyer's agents are going to charge fifteen dollars to $20,000 or about 1.8 to 2% depending on the purchase price. So um, that's going to depend what you're buying, where you're buying. Like obviously I've, I've bought a whole shopping center before, charged a little bit more because it's obviously a lot more work. So that one you'd charge the percentage. If it was something just like a simple warehouse, you'd charge that fifteen to $20,000 for instance. So uh, my advice to your listeners is don't focus so much on someone's price. Just focus on the expertise because like I said, with a million-dollar commercial property, that's giving you $50,000 a year passive income. So buying something sooner rather than later, that's a better quality stock is going to pay way more dividends in the future. Mm. And in terms of structuring the investment purchase, uh, do, you, do you find a lot of people do it in their personal names or is it more in a, in a, a company or a, a family trust or trust setup? Yeah, so mo- most will do it in a family trust. Um, that's actually a question for your accountant though because they're going to know your personal circumstances, so they'll go into that. Basically, you buy under a trust for obviously tax minimization or asset protection. So a lot of people in your field are going to be buying under trust for asset protection. Um, You also need to be able to service the tax that the tenants pays. Um, Some do buy under their personal names, but admittedly, they're normally first-time investors or not established. But most of my clients have a residential portfolio already. And most good accountants aren't going to recommend to keep buying under personal names. So they'll they'll set up a, a company trust structure or something like that. Then there's obviously self-managed super funds and things like that. But before I make any purchase, I call my accountant and I give him the details of the deal and ask him what entity should I buy it under. Mm. Have you seen many issues where risk has been the problem of someone buying it in their personal name and then something from that commercial investment has actually taken them out on a personal level? generally not i'd like to kind of rate myself as someone who mitigates risk so i've I've never bought anything that's kind of too silly and i make sure they've got all the insurances in place so i haven't seen any kind of horror stories it'd be similar to the residential space though if you if you don't if you don't protect yourself you're going to get burnt and so a number of doctors look to purchase their consulting rooms as an investment particularly in their self-managed super funds what's your approach to to this in terms of buying your own consulting rooms and also putting it in your in your fund yeah all right so there, there's obviously benefits to buying your own one so there's, there's tax tax benefits um, and then security that you're not going to be kicked out of a place as opposed to renting so that that's fine I always look at it holistically though and say is this the best investment for me long term? And then compare that. A lot of the time, it's not. But a doctor, is, for instance, if they're in a good income and they want the security of being there, it actually does make sense. But then you need to weigh up like the yield that you're getting. So if you're buying in like a little office suite and that office suite's only getting, I don't know, 4% net return, but you could go out and you could buy in a different area getting a 7% net return, you want to want to make sure that those benefits outweigh that 3% net change in return. So there, there, there's pros and cons of both. It, it just like I said, you assess why you're buying it and what the benefits are long term, and then make a decision from there. Mm, and obviously, speak to your accountant uh, about that. And in terms of lending, what sort of rates should we be looking at in 
if uh, if for commercial property. And also, uh, are self-managed super funds able to borrow again now? Because there was a bit of um, you know changes over the last year or so, right? Yep, that's correct. So generally, as a rule of thumb, just add one percent to the residential rate. So that that's what I'm seeing. I'm starting to see in the commercial space with like the number two in front of it, like a lot of two point fives, two point eights, and things like that pop up, but. General rule of thumb, 1% higher than residential rates. So most are between that kind of 28 and 3.4% kind of range. Uh, self-managed super funds, yes, you can lend in those. So there's a few lenders doing those. They're much higher interest rate though. We're talking about 5% in those. So that, that's why a lot of investors now are no longer just buying residential. They're looking for commercial because they actually do need that higher return for the numbers to make sense. Mm. If you go for something like a non-recourse loan, does that typically um, reduce yield? Um, your interest rate? It, it's going to depend. Commercial is also a little bit different. So it's going to depend what structure you're buying under. But then it also depends. Different lenders have different interest rates, surprisingly, for where you're buying and what asset class you're buying. So like I had one a few weeks ago where they, they, they had not a pre-approval because commercial is a bit different. It was an approval in principle. And then we bought something in Queensland. And because that lender doesn't have an appetite for Queensland because they're highly leveraged there, the interest rate was actually higher. So there's a few more moving parts with things with commercial investing. Hmm. So, so a lot of guys have um, their own private bankers with one of the big four banks. Yep. Uh, how, If they're looking at getting into the commercial space, how should they get the kind of pre-approval uh, things sorted out with, with their banker? Or is it something that you take it to a commercial broker? Uh, you can do it both. I've, I've used a private lender before. Um, it's one by private broker, I should say. And I've also used a broker. Um, go to, you normally got a relationship and most medical professionals are time poor. So, Go to your, your private broker with the um, or sorry, the lender and then have a chat with them and just get a gauge, like a thumbsuck figure of this is how much you should be able to borrow in the commercial space. The actual approval will come down to the property itself. You still need to buy a good quality property with a good tenant, good lease, good location for the banks to give you the money. But when you're buying a commercial, you'll actually make the property sub, assuming you're not buying an auction, of course, make the um, contract subject to finance anyway. So as an absolute worst case is, you might waste a bit of your time and spend a bit of money on a building pest inspection or a solicitor, uh, but you're not going to lose a deposit, for instance. Like I've, I've never lost a deposit and I've purchased hundreds of deals. So um, it, there's pros and cons of both. I, I like brokers um, because they're obviously going to look at different lenders, get a better rate, um, and then kind of fix you up that way. But in saying that, though, if you're time poor and it doesn't matter if you get a 2.8 versus a 2.9%, you just want it done and dusted because they've got all your data and you've got your business banking with them, then it makes sense to use a private lender. Mm. And so what do you think is the minimum amount that uh, investors should have to get started? Yeah, uh, so that's that can be really, really small. It could be something like a, a $70,000 car park in the city, um, which I generally don't recommend. I think they're a bit of a silly investment. Um, but most of the time, it starts around that 200K. So I've bought, I bought a $180,000 warehouse up in the Sunshine Coast. Um, I bought one in Adelaide for kind of 250. So that kind of 200K plus, you can get cheap little kind of warehouses. And then it can go up to anywhere, the tens of millions of dollars. Um, my, most, most of my buyers, though, buying that $500,000 to $1.5 million price range, just because that's where most people's capital and budget will lie. Yep, so it's it's not massive amounts. So if you're looking at that kind of two, three hundred to five hundred space, your deposit at around about what 40 percent plus um, closing costs is yep. what we should be factoring in. Yeah, exactly right. So yep. you, it depends what you buy. Though you're not going to get a freestanding building for four hundred thousand though. We're talking like a an eighty square meter warehouse, part of an industrial complex, for instance. If you want to buy, say, like a freestanding 
industrial warehouse, then you're probably talking $1 million to $2 million. But then again, it's going to depend where you're buying. So like I've bought for $1.2 million, I've got a 2,000-square-meter warehouse in um, Brisbane's West, but I've also bought ones within five kilometers of CBD where it's 200 square meters for the same price. Mm, yeah. And so rather than purchasing properties by themselves, what are other ways investors can diversify their risk and reduce their capital requirements to get started? So, so what do you mean by that? So is it easy to find things like syndicates and uh, managed uh, property, kind of unlisted managed property trusts where people can kind of start, get a bit of an idea and just from the due diligence of say going into that syndicate kind of get their feet wet and, and knowledge, um, gain their knowledge before they go solo to, to do their own deal? Yeah, so, so the, there are kind of formal syndicates you can kind of buy into. Um, the negatives with those are you won't actually learn that much anyway because it, it's kind of like buying a share portfolio, but the share is just commercial property, for instance. Mm-hmm. So less tangible, less impact that you can have yourself. Also, leveraging is a bit harder. Like you're not going to get a 70% loan in a syndicate. Like most of the time, it's 50% or less. So there's actually less leveraging. So you've actually got less borrowing capacity that way. So there's a, I've, I've run some private ones as well where we've bought like an $11 million shopping center plus another commercial warehouse and we've made it $20 million and we've had kind of 10 investors go in on it. So there's options like that you can do. They're a little bit more tangible because you can do your value add and things like that. Um, but yeah, if, if you're starting out, I'd, I'd keep it simple. If you want to buy a property, go buy some shares, for instance, I'm, I, this is not financial advice, but I would just keep it simple and just buy something very well diversified um, and educate yourself in the background until you've got that kind of risk profile and the capital sitting there that you can buy something yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thanks, Steve, for being so generous with your time today. I feel like there's um, heaps more that we could talk about. Um, your book really does go into a lot more details and with the number of really uh, good checklists that I think a lot of um, investors, whether they're new or um, you know experienced investors, would also benefit from as well. How can investors learn more about you and how they can start or grow their property portfolio? Yep. Um, so feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Facebook and things like that. Um, or first and foremost, you can buy my book. So um, this is the first time I'm actually going to offer this, Andrew, is I'm actually giving my book away for free to your listeners. All they have to do is pay for postage. So um, go to www policyproperty.com and then use the code word medical, M-E-D-I-C-A-L, and I'll give you my book for free. Fantastic. I'll put those um, links in the show notes as well so that way people can just click that from whatever uh, podcast provider they're using. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Steve. Look forward to catching up again soon and uh, it'd be interesting to see how the the market plays out over the next um, year or so with the residential market being touted for like 20% gains. (laughs) Yeah, I think what I heard on the, uh, the radio this morning. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I think that's another conversation for us to have on another podcast, Andrew. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, mate. Have a good afternoon. Cool, thank you. Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you learned something new, please share the episode with your family and friends. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.